I would not bet against Mitch McConnell. Uh, he is very, very good at getting things done through the Senate. Mm, except not today. Maybe tomorrow. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right, here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck From in Pacifica the Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. In Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast, 106.7 FM Queso in Cottage Grove. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 92.9 FM WLRI and Maui, Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1 FM. In Palinville, New York on 102.9 FM WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR. And in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. We're also heard streaming coast to coast and around the globe on the internets every day on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Deprogrammed Radio, Detour Talk, and Radio Sputnik. Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Boy, oh boy, Desi Doyen, I cannot wait to get to the July 4 break. <laughs> That's me. Uh, maybe not Mitch McConnell, however. Uh, uh, he yeah. had. Uh, he w- I think he wishes the July 4th break didn't take place for a few more weeks yet, but it does. But before we get to that news breaking out of the Senate today... A little reminder, a little flashback. Des, do you remember the Cornhusker kickback, as they <laughs> called it back in 2009? Actually, yes, I do. Well, for those people who don't remember, this from Politico. Uh, just a, a reminder here back from uh, December of 2009. Ben Nelson's Cornhusker kickback, as the GOP is calling it, got all the attention Saturday, but other senators lined up for deals as Majority Leader Harry Reid, oh, remember him, (laughs) corralled the last few votes for a health reform package. Nelson's might be the most blatant, a deal carved out for a single state, a permanent exemption from the state share of Medicaid expansion for Nebraska, meaning federal taxpayers have to kick in an additional $45 million in the first decade. Well, that seems like a small number compared to what we're talking about now. But another Democratic holdout senator, Bernie Sanders, independent from Vermont, took credit for $10 billion in new funding for community health centers while denying that it was a, quote, sweetheart deal. He was clearly more enthusiastic about a bill he said he couldn't support just three days ago. Again, this is from December of 2009. As Democrats were working to uh, pass the Affordable Care Act, later known as Obamacare, through the U.S. Senate. At the time, Nelson and Senator Carl Levin of Michigan had carved out an exemption for nonprofit insurers in in their states from a hefty excise tax. Similar insurers in the other 48 states would have to pay that tax. 
Vermont and Massachusetts were given additional Medicaid funding. Another another plus for Sanders, uh, for Senator Sanders and Senator Patrick Leahy of Vermont. Three states, Pennsylvania, New York and Florida, all won protections for their Medicare Advantage beneficiaries at a time when the program was facing cuts nationwide. All of that came on top of a $300 million increase for Medicaid in Louisiana designed to win the vote of Democratic Senator Mary Landrieu. Under pressure from the Obama White House to get a deal done by Christmas, Reed, Senate Leader Reed, was unapologetic. He argued that by definition, legislating means deal-making and defending the special treatment for Nelson's home state of Nebraska. He said, you'll find a number of states that are treated differently than other states. That's that's what legislating is all about. It is compromise, he said at the time. And of course, you'll recall that Republicans were just merciless in their critique of Democrats for those deals. Yeah. Republicans, Fox News, same thing. Uh, You know, they were calling these things bribes and everything else. But that's what it took eventually to get the uh, to get the Democratic health care plan passed through the Senate and eventually uh, into law. The Affordable Care Act, despite the way Republicans at the time pretended that it was an absolute outrage. Well, I think some of those Republicans uh, are doing some of that deal-making themselves uh, today. Senate Republicans on Tuesday were forced to postpone a planned vote on the GOP bill to replace Obamacare until after the July 4th recess. Senators were told of the delay at a Republican lunch by Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who had been promising all week long that this, yes, this vote on the Senate Uh, What do they call it? The Better Care Reconciliation Act that that would absolutely take place. The move, of course, is a devastating blow and an embarrassing setback, at least, to Republican leaders who had been pushing for that vote this week out of concern that a delay would only make it more difficult to pass the legislation once Americans learn more about what this bill would do. Uh, And once they decided to let their senators know about it over the July 4th recess back in the states, uh, like, for example, once they heard that the Congressional Budget Office, the nonpartisan CBO, determined some 22 million Americans would lose their health care under the GOP plan. Some 15 million of them uh, next year alone. So it became clear on Tuesday that McConnell simply did not have enough time to round up enough votes to put out enough bribes, if you'd like to use the Republican uh, language for it, to get the support that he would need in just the uh, few days needed before their their desired deadline of Friday, particularly as senators have been dropping out like flies over the past 24 hours or so on the Republican side. And interesting how more Senate Republicans are dropping out after it was clear they weren't going to go forward with the bill. Well, they each of them did not want to be the one. The first one out? Yeah, well, the one to cause this to fail. Remember, they had a really slim var- uh, margin here. They had just uh, they had to get 50 votes, in which case Mitch McConnell would break the tie. 
Uh, here was uh, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell's announcement on Tuesday uh, that he was being forced to delay the vote until after the holiday recess. A reporter asks him, does this mean that the, uh, the attempt to repeal Obamacare is dead? He says, absolutely not. As I think you may have already heard, we're going to continue the discussions within our conference on the differences that we have, that we're continuing to try to litigate. Uh, consequently, we will not be on the bill this week. No, no, we're continuing to talk about it. That's a very complicated subject. Look, uh, co- legislation of, of this complexity uh, almost always takes longer than anybody else would hope. Uh, but we're going to press on. We think the status quo is unsustainable for all the obvious reasons we've discussed over and over and over again. And we're optimistic we're going to get to a result that's better than the status quo. So after that announcement, the announcement of the delay in this uh, Republican health care plan to uh, repeal and replace Obamacare, most of the Republican senators got on buses and they traveled over to the White House for a meeting with Donald Trump to discuss the bill. Uh, well, here's a little bit of what uh, how Trump opened that uh, that meeting today. We have really no choice but to solve this situation. Obamacare is a total disaster. It's melting down as we speak. So we're going to talk and we're going to see what we can do. We're getting very close. But for the country, we have to have health care. And it can't be Obamacare, which is melting down. Uh, the other side is saying all sorts of things before they even knew what the bill was. This will be great if we get it done. And if we don't get it done, it's just going to be something that we're not going to like. And that's okay. And I understand that very well. But I think we have a chance to do something very, very important. No, uh, Obamacare is not melting down. No matter how many times they say that, no matter how many times Republicans lie to themselves about Obamacare and frankly lie to themselves about their own legislation. Uh, and and the idea that they're going to pass a replacement here. So-called conservatives, of course, are disappointed that the current legislation doesn't uh, constitute a full repeal of the Affordable Care Act, that it doesn't hurt enough people, I guess. Moderates in the Senate are concerned about the deep cuts in Medicaid spending. That's on the Republican side. On the Democratic side, they haven't been uh, brought into this process at all. They, at this point, as long as the Republicans are claiming to... Uh, that Obamacare is a disaster and they're going to repeal and replace it, why should the Democrats help them at all to repeal and replace that signature uh, legislation uh, under uh, President Obama? So uh, Republicans today uh, had no choice, really, but to to delay the vote. They didn't have it. They would have lost had they held their vote uh, today or this week. Many of those Republicans are now understanding that uh, this bill will cut Medicaid dramatically, and they have a lot of concerns about that, particularly in states where they have expanded Medicaid under Obamacare. Uh, They're also concerned that this is going to repeal all of the Affordable Care Act's taxes on the very wealthy and on the health care industry while keeping much of Obamacare's structure in place, but with less generous benefits. Opposition to the current bill continued to grow after the delay was announced. Uh, we, we had about four or five uh, senators who said they would not vote for it. And then since then, uh, Lisa Murkowski, for example, from Alaska, has jumped in to say, when did we get to the point where we said, no, we're not going to talk to Democrats about a fix? 
I'm sorry. They, <laughs> she could have said that at any time in the last six weeks. Exa- she could have said it any time <laughs> over the last eight or nine years yes. while Republicans have been lying about Obamacare, what it does and doesn't do. And then now lying about their own legislation uh, that for some reason is wildly unpopular with less than uh, about, you know, less than 20 percent of Americans supporting it. But listen, they have been lying about their own bill constantly, not just about Obamacare, but about their own bill. They over the weekend. Trump advisors were on the uh, on the Sunday shows lying about the bill, saying that it won't cut Medicaid. Of course, it will cut Medicaid. Kellyanne Conway told uh, ABC's George Stephanopoulos, these are not Medicaid cuts, George. Yes, they're Medicaid cuts. Health and Human Services Secretary Tom Price was on CNN and said it just wouldn't happen when he was asked about Republican concerns over Medicaid cuts. Uh, There is no polling yet on the uh, Senate bill, to my knowledge, uh, but uh, most Americans... Uh, don't know that the House passed version of the bill would make huge, significant cuts to Medicaid, some eight hundred thousand dollars. I'm sorry, eight hundred billion dollars. That's considered Medicaid. Different. Yeah. Um, so just apparently just 38 percent of respondents in this one poll even know about those cuts to Medicaid. Maybe that's because Republicans have been out there lying about those cuts. Republicans in the Senate, Republicans in the White House. And the cuts in the Senate version are even deeper than the ones in the House uh, in the House version. So uh, this would, in fact, be a massive cut to Medicaid. It would roll back uh, not just the Medicaid expansion, but the Senate version would also begin to put caps per capita caps on the program. Uh, that well, maybe we'll talk about that with my guests uh, here in a few moments. Um, But, you know, Trump administration officials have been presenting, as Kellyanne Conway once said, alternate facts about this bill, which uh, Stephanopoulos called out Conway on. That's a good thing. He replied that uh, eight hundred billion dollars in savings seems like cuts to me. Uh, And and those cuts to Medicaid will have a big impact on everyone's health care. Uh, as my guests who just published a study on this will will explain shortly. But the GOP has been in denial about facts, facts concerning Obamacare for a very long time. And now I think they're paying the price for that. Realizing that all the things that they decried are the very things that are helping to keep our health care system and the 20 million more Americans who are now insured under the Affordable Care Act, helping to keep the whole system afloat. And they don't want to be responsible for killing it. At least a few of them don't. A few of them who might sort of kind of have a conscience. Uh, And those who are realizing there's a difference between, you know, political campaigning, which Republicans are very good, and actual governing, which they're not so good at. And I think you can flip those, by the way, for Democrats who are not very good at campaigning, but they are better at least at governing and getting things done, getting things passed. They don't have to go out and lie about them. Mitch McConnell, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, after the um, Congressional Budget Office analysis came out, finding that some 22 million would lose their health care by 2026 under the Republican proposal, he said this was good news. He said the CBO... Uh, the, the Senate will soon take action on a bill that the Congressional Budget Office just confirmed will reduce the growth 
in premiums under Obamacare, reduce taxes on the middle class, and reduce the deficit. He didn't mention that it would also reduce health care for pretty much everyone in the country. Uh, so now what are they doing? Well, they are making the same deals. They are realizing, hey, uh, we've got uh, about $200 billion more in savings, according to the CBO, than we realized. We can dole that out to all of our members. We can have our own Cornhusker kickbacks. That's what they're going to have to do uh, if they want to stick with this idea of uh, their own bill rather than uh, working with Democrats to somehow fix some of the many problems that do exist in the Affordable Care Act. So how did things fall apart over the past 24 hours so quickly on this bill in the Senate? Things were not looking good as of Monday night for the fate, anyway, the immediate fate of the Republicans' Better Care Reconciliation Act and the need for the 50 votes they'll, uh, they would have to have to have to pass it in the U.S. Senate. Majority Leader McConnell could only afford to lose two votes, two Republican senators, uh, before the vote would be tied 50-50. That would allow Vice President Mike Pence to cast the deciding vote in favor of the GOP plan. But if McConnell lost three, it would be over. And as of Monday night, Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin, who's been a vocal opponent of the, uh, of the Senate Republicans' rushed process to vote on this bill, um, it would you know to not just repeal and replace Obamacare, but restructure one-fifth of the U.S. economy, uh, before the Senate leaves for the uh, 4th of July recess. And this just days after the secretly crafted legislation was even introduced in the first place. Many of the Republicans hadn't seen it. So Johnson said on Monday night that he would vote to block the bill from proceeding if leaders pushed for a rushed vote this week. As of Monday, Johnson was the third, I believe, the third at the time Republican senator to announce his opposition to the bill as written. They all keep hinting they'll uh, they'll take a deal. They're interested in a deal. But he was the third following the uh, CBO's analysis that was so devastating as it came out on Monday. Senator Johnson's announcement had uh, had followed on statements from uh, GOP senators Susan Collins of Maine, Rand Paul of Kentucky, who each said that they, too, would oppose a vote this week to allow the Senate bill to proceed. Senate Dean Heller of Nevada last week said that he would oppose the bill in its current form. And then on Tuesday... Far-right Utah Senator Mike Lee said he could no longer vote for the bill as written either, and then that began the quick process toward uh, McConnell's announcement that they would not try to pass the bill. They would go back to the drawing board or at least to the White House for a few minutes try to figure out what the hell to do. For her part, Senator Susan Collins of Maine, she took to Twitter last night to announce her intention of voting against uh, moving the bill forward. She said, I want to work with my GOP and Democratic colleagues to fix the flaws in the ACA, but the CBO analysis shows the GOP Senate bill won't do it, she said. She said the Senate bill doesn't fix ACA's problems for rural Maine. She cited access to health care in rural areas being threatened under this bill thanks to the Medicaid cuts. She said our hospitals are already struggling. One in five Mainers are on Medicaid. Philip Klein of the Washington Examiner, an opponent of Obamacare, replied to Collins to say, I smell the rural Maine hospital improvement amendment brewing. Well, maybe so. It was those sorts of deals that did help Democrats get to the 60 votes that they needed. 
when they were attempting to pass the Affordable Care Act. So uh, we may see some more Cornhusker kickbacks. Uh, these deals are necessary in lawmaking. Uh, but what are those hospitals that uh, Susan Collins cites as already struggling in rural Maine? How will the enormous cuts that are planned for Medicaid, some $800 billion over the next year, uh, I'm sorry, next 10 years, uh, that's almost a trillion dollars slashed from the program uh, for those who are counting. How will all of that affect hospitals in rural areas of Maine and elsewhere? How will they, those hospitals, be affected by the Senate GOP's Better Care Reconciliation Act if it ever passes? Uh, and will that affect everyone uh, who rely on those hospitals, even if they don't use either Medicaid or the Medicaid expansion under the Affordable Care Act? My guests, two longtime experts in analyzing health care reform and the effect that it has on people and the economy. Join us next to talk about that. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. <laughs> Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Well, despite Republican denial about the severity of the cuts in the uh, both the Senate and House bills to repeal and replace Obamacare, those cuts some $800 billion will affect a lot of Americans uh, directly and a lot more indirectly in ways that many Americans, I don't think, actually understand. And Republicans themselves either don't understand or seem willing to mislead the public about. Uh, those cuts to Medicaid will also affect hospitals, particularly in rural areas and in states that expand Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act. The effect on already struggling rural hospitals in Maine, for example, was one of the central reasons cited by moderate Republican Senator Susan Collins of Maine, for her announcement on Twitter last night that she could not vote for the Senate GOP plan as written. And her concerns are very real. At the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities last week, following the release of the Senate GOP plan, Matt Broadus wrote, Hospitals in states that expanded Medicaid coverage to low-income adults under the Affordable Care Act, particularly those in rural areas, have fared significantly better than hospitals in non-expansion states. Based on recent published and unpublished research by the Urban Institute, since 2013, uncompensated care costs have fallen by 1.7 percentage points more, and Medicaid revenue as a share of total revenue has risen by 2.9 percentage points more in hospitals in Medicaid expansion states. That's happened more than uh, has happened in non-expansion states. The Medicaid expansion also improved hospitals' operating margins by two and a half points, and the impact on rural hospitals' operating margins was even stronger, a four 
point improvement compared to just a one percentage point for urban hospitals. So they rely on this Medicaid expansion. A lot of people do, whether they know it or not, even if you don't uh, get Medicaid, but you rely on one of these hospitals. Another study published by the Commonwealth Fund on Friday found that uncompensated care costs may increase, get this, by 78 percent at hospitals in Medicaid expansion states over the next 10 years if the GOP legislation becomes law. Moreover, the study at Commonwealth finds rural hospitals in states that didn't expand Medicaid face major declines in operating margins under the House GOP scheme. The Senate plan, when it comes to cuts to Medicaid, is expected to be much worse, at least as the bill is currently written. Joining us now to explain the relationship between Medicaid and the health of hospitals across the country themselves are two of the authors of the study published by the Commonwealth Fund on Friday. Alan Dobson is uh, a Ph.D. and a health economist and president of Dobson and Devano and Associates, a health uh, economics and policy consulting firm in Washington, D.C., He's co-author of the, of the report published at Commonwealth. Randy Haught is also a co-author of that report and a senior data manager at Dobson Devano with nearly 30 years of experience performing analysis of major health care reform legislation and, uh, and provider payment regulations. The Commonwealth Fund, for its part, was established in 1918, and it states on its website that its mission is to promote a high-performing health care system that achieves better access, improved quality, and greater efficiency, particularly for society's most vulnerable, including low-income people, the uninsured, minority Americans, young children, and elderly adults. Gentlemen, welcome to the broadcast. Great to have you both here. Glad to be here, Brad. Uh, Alan, uh, let me start with you, and uh, I, I may actually, it's uh, actually uh, president of Dobson and Devonzo and Associates. I may have mispronounced that there. My apologies. Uh, but let me start with you, Alan. Uh, what, is a, what is a health economist? health economist <laughs> is one who studies the health economy. When I started economics, there was no such thing as a health economist. But as health economy grew to be 16, 17, 18 percent of the GDP, health economics became very important. And we're the guys who worry about what happens to our economy as health care expands and how, uh, into, uh, how hospitals and the like are financed and how they're faring under our current structure of insurance in this country. One of the loudest uh, GOP complaints about the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare was that it was killing jobs, it was hurting the economy, it was uh, amounted to a government takeover of one-fifth of the economy. Is, uh, is any of that actually borne out after seven years of Obamacare? Has it killed jobs, hurt the economy, and, and is it a government takeover of the economy? Hardly a government takeover because what's really happening is that the private sector still provides the care. The insurance companies still, uh, private insurance companies still provide, except for Medicaid, of course. But even under Medicaid, private sector providers and hospitals and physicians still provide the care. So government takeover is uh, certainly a stretch, a very large stretch. In terms of jobs, uh, actually, I think the Obamacare has been a, a, a movement, of, an increase of jobs, particularly in rural areas where hospitals have uh, done better under the uh, ACA and have hired more people to provide the care to the Medicaid people in the expansion states who've been taken up by the program. 
Do uh, do either of the GOP plans, as you see it, the uh, the American Health Care Act in the House, the Better Care Reconciliation Act in the Senate, as they are currently written in any case, uh, do either of them speak to any of those complaints that we've heard for so many years uh, from the GOP about Obamacare? Well, they, they, unwind, they do a couple things, as mm-hmm. you well know. They uh, shift it on the tax cut. They move in money uh, from the poor to the rich, which... Uh, is hardly a health care bill. And you might argue that both neither bill is really a health care bill and that they're primarily about taxes getting set up for a broader tax cut. And ultimately, uh, as you mentioned, 22 million or 23 million more people uninsured, mm-hmm. that's hardly a health bill as well. If you have a distaste for covering people, as many of our colli- uh, uh, fellow Americans do, this bill certainly achieves that objective because fewer people would be covered. If you want to have uh, more people covered, then we're certainly going the wrong direction with either bill. Randy Hott, uh, before we get into the specifics of how the proposed Medicaid cuts may affect hospitals in both Medicaid expansion and non-expansion states, uh, as well as both urban and rural hospitals in, in either of those two states, do you see anything in either of the GOP bills that actually improves on the care or of the affordability uh, of health care for Americans. This is what Republicans have long claimed to be seeking by repealing and replacing Obamacare. Surely uh, there are improvements somewhere in here for actual health care, are there not? For actual health care, we don't see anything in there that's going to improve the quality of, of care for, um, or nor the uh, access to uh, health care coverage with uh, as i was saying with 22 million more people uninsured that's mm-hmm. um that's going to and particularly those are the most uh, the lowest income most vulnerable patients is going to cause real issues with um with them to be able to access health care in the u.s we've uh, we've talked a bit about uh, about this over the past week or so on this show uh, as the senate was releasing their plan randy but uh medicaid goes far beyond what most people think of as, uh, you know, they think of it as, oh, it's just health care for poor people. Uh, can, can you speak a, a little bit about the importance of Medicaid overall to the U.S. health care system uh, in general, above and beyond, you know, a, a, a program for poor people? Oh, that's, yeah, that's a great point, Brad. Yeah, because the um, Medicaid, although it's set up primarily for um, as a, as a program for low income, it also it covers primarily children, uh, which I think nearly half of the program, half of the enrollees in the program are children. And uh, between Medicaid and CHIP, it's uh, it's helped the country to achieve about a 95% um, coverage rate for children. Uh, others that are um, also enrolled in Medicaid are it, it takes over takes care of disabled people Mm -hmm. and the elderly, really kind of the bookends of life, uh, providing long-term care to um, to a a large number of uh, our seniors, and it also takes on the um, coverage of the disabled as well. Uh, Alan, I may add. Yeah, go ahead. Yes, I want to add to that. As we're moving into an aging uh, 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 population, the Medicaid program becomes ever more important because what's called long-term care support services that's folks that live in nursing homes, not to go in for temporary rehabilitation, but live in nursing homes. By and large, that care is covered for by the Medicaid program. If we move back on the Medicaid program, as these bills are threatening to do, we will threaten the access to long-term care support services by the elderly in this country, and it'll get worse year by year by year. 
And that is uh, that's above and beyond even in the uh, you know we've been talking about the healthcare uh, I'm sorry the Medicaid expansion but the Senate bill actually cuts into the traditional Medicaid program and a lot of uh, what is it something like two uh, two out of three uh, uh, seniors in uh, nursing homes are actually paid for by that traditional Medicaid system am, am I right about that Yes I think it's pretty close to about yeah about two thirds. Alan Dobson, how does uh, Medicaid itself relate to the health of hospitals themselves in general? How how much of a part of their business relies on uh, Medicaid payments around the country? Dependent upon the hospitals, probably between 8 and 15 percent of the revenues come from Medicaid thereabouts. Some hospitals, it's considerably more. In fact, if you take Medicare and Medicaid together, there are many hospitals in the country in the 50, 60, 70 percent range on those two programs. It's very important to programs, uh, hospitals, and particularly in the rural areas. And if you think about a hospital in a rural area that's uh, heavily uh, influenced by the Medicaid and low-income populations, Mm -hmm. it would be much larger than the numbers I gave you and absolutely critical to the survival of the hospital. You talk about in your report, Alan, uh, well, there's this, the, there's a disparity. There's a, a, a big difference in the numbers that you see uh, between the Medicaid expansion and non-expansion states uh, when it comes to hospitals. Can, can you talk a little bit about that and, and how the Affordable Care Act has had an effect on uh, hospitals in Medicaid uh, expansion states versus the non-expansion states? Well, expansion versus non-expansion is very simple. Uh, expansion allowed more coverage of Medicaid. Imagine that you're running a hospital and you have two choices. Somebody comes in and they're totally uninsured, they're uncovered by any insurance, and you have to pay for all of it. Or the person comes in and they're in large part, say 80% or 90% of their care is covered by Medicaid. It's, it's pretty much an easy toss-up that the more Medicaid you have, uh, uh, as opposed to the more uninsured you have, the better off your hospital would be. And that's why we show the numbers in the un, uh, the uh, the expansion states, as we unravel the coverage, their, uninsu- their uninsured, uh, un- uncompensated care increases, and their paid-for care by Medicaid decreases, a very nasty situation for a hospital because care that's currently paid for will not be ca- ca- uh, care- paid for, uh, and particularly, again, in those hospitals that have a heavy re- uh, reliance on the Medicaid population. Your study finds, for example, that 11 of the expansion states will see uncompensated care costs, and I guess that's when somebody walks in without coverage, but the hospital needs to help them anyway, uh, that uh, 11 of these expansion states will see uncompensated care costs at least double between 2017 and 2026. Can, uh, can the hospitals afford that and still survive, Alan? Uh, hard to predict with the accuracy what will happen, but I think a major point that uh, Randy and I will both make is if you have a hospital that's currently in equilibrium, and some of these hospitals you can see have very low operating margins and very low total margins, if those are uh, affected, obviously they'll be worse off what will likely happen is that the hospitals will be uh, more particular on their charity care. Uh, they're going to have a lot more trouble with extra programs uh, that, that treat uh, po- uh, low-income populations. They're going to have trouble with those special programs for uh, uh, you know, ch- children that uh, are, are very, uh, very sick and chronically ill. And they're just generally going to have a lot of trouble providing and staying modern and updating uh, in, uh, with, with current technology. So what you've done is you weakened a hospital, and as you suggested in your uh, interview, uh, interview uh, uh, introduction, that a hospital that's sick 
financially. It's a hospital that is sick for everybody in the community. Mm-hmm. You're not just hurting Medicaid. You're not just hurting the Medicaid folks, the so-called poverty population. You're hurting everybody in the community because when a hospital can't provide uh, the quality care it would like to, to one guy, it can't provide it to the next guy either because everybody gets treated the same once they walk through the doors of our community hospitals. Yeah, that's one of the concerns uh, that I have, that a lot of people see this, uh, that, you know, they oh, great, cut, cut Medicaid. We don't care about that. That only that only uh, helps poor people. I'm, I'm covered. I'm fine. I've got insurance through my employer or whatever it is. And I don't think they understand how this may uh, affect the medical services that they are able to receive at their own hospitals. Uh, Randy, how does the how does the distinction uh, between rural and urban hospitals come into play here? We see very uh, disparate numbers uh, the way those uh, those hospitals uh, will be affected. Yes, we found that, um, well, one, we found that, uh, of course, it's going to be very different between the expansion and non-expansion states mm-hmm. uh, for both urban and rural hospitals. That uh, basically all the, a lot of the gains that they, uh, they achieve during um, the Medicaid expansion is going to be, um, be more than, sort of more than wiped out, both losing the expansion and additional cuts through the, um, what we'll talk about maybe later is mm-hmm. the, uh, the per capita limits on mm-hmm. federal spending that will be uh, happening under, could be happening under the bills, that those put a, are going to put enormous pressures on the hospitals, and particularly rural hospitals that are already struggling even with the, um, even with the expansion, uh, that, uh, that by, doing, by eliminating um, a lot of this is going to, um, could put a, a lot of rural hospitals in, in, um, in jeopardy, especially those that treat, that have, uh, treat a lot of um, Medicaid patients now. And is that essentially uh, come down to the fact that in these uh, rural areas you don't have as many doctors uh, or you have, uh, you know, doctors that frankly don't have as many patients, so their costs are higher? I mean, is that the sort of the, the distinction between the urban and the rural, uh, the, the difference, the, the, the disparity in costs in those hospitals? Uh, that's a that's a that's a good question. I think there, there's going to there's kind of two things that are, are really coupling here. One under the um, under the ACA, uh, in order to pay for a lot of the uh, the Medicaid expansions and the subsidies, mm-hmm. uh, hospitals gave up uh, a lot of Medi- Medicare money. There was cuts to Medicare that are still growing today. And since oftentimes rural hospitals are treat older populations uh, and a growing older populations, those Medicare cuts are um, are particular are are, are more impactful on um, on the rural hospitals. Mm. Now you couple this with um, th- th- now they they've they've given up that money to have the to potentially have a expansion in coverage. Um, that all that expansion now goes away, but those cuts, those Medicare cuts, don't go away. Mm. So they're basically getting a, a double a double hit uh, with that, and that's uh, we think that could be um, very uh, very detrimental to rural hospitals. And that was actually yeah. You, yeah go ahead. Uh, if you look at the charts, the charts are falling over the next ten years expansion, non-expansion, with and without the the law enacted. That's primarily the Medicare effect. The hospitals made a deal. They said, we'll pay higher taxes uh, in order to get the expansion under the, uh, first the AC and, and uh, under the ACA. Well, the expansion came. Now the Congress wants to take the expansion away, but they're keeping the Medicare cuts in. Mm. So it's a deal that went south for the hospitals, uh, both because 
they have the Medicare cuts to deal with, and they're not getting the expansion, which puts them at double jeopardy, as Randy said. And so yeah. when they talk about repealing the uh, the Affordable Care Act, they, they're repealing the taxes, they're taking away the Medicaid expansion, but they're not restoring the original Medicare cuts that were used to pay for all of those other things, right? Exactly, yes. yes. Wow. Uh, Your study, uh, Randy, your study uh, more than uh, finds that more than 46 million Americans live in rural areas and depend on the hospitals located in those communities. There's already substantial financial pressure on rural hospitals. Reports indicate that an increasing number are closing each year and many more are vulnerable to closure. Uh, Has the Affordable Care Act uh, Obamacare had a positive effect on hospitals overall, uh, rural or urban, uh, since its implementation? It's a, the, the expa- for those states that expanded, we did see, definitely saw a, a large reduction in uncompensated care, mm-hmm. uh, big increases in, um, of course, Medicaid revenue, and, and improved margins, both in, um, in rural areas and in um, and in urban areas for states that expanded, not so much for states that didn't expand. And as, as what we've seen so far is a lot of the rural hospitals that are in jeopardy and are closing are primarily in the non-expansion states, mm. in the southern states, that, um, that they're in trouble. So now if we, uh, if we also remove the, the expansion, we think, uh, we're, we'd expect to see those same types of problems in the, the expansion states as well, really doubling the doubling the, the problem for rural hospitals uh, across all the states. Yeah, these are some pretty stark numbers. I'm looking over at uh, Urban Institute's study. They find that... Um that the uh, Medicaid expansion significantly reduced rural hospitals' uncompensated care costs, uh, which are uh, for services for which hospitals are not reimbursed by an insurer or the patient. Between 2013 and 2015, rural hospitals' uncompensated care costs fell 43% in Medicaid expansion states compared to just 16% in non-expansion states. Uh, these numbers are pretty stark, uh, actually, uh, between those uh, ex- expansion and non-expansion states. And I think both of the bills, Alan, do I understand it correctly that both uh, the Senate and the House versions of this bill will, will they be completely doing away with the Medicaid expansion program? Uh, just different uh, number of years uh, out before they do so. But, but do they basically do away with this Medicaid expansion, which seems to have been the most, one of the most helpful parts here, at least for hospitals, when it comes to the Affordable Care Act. They, they may have a certain option for states to uh, partake, but they'll have to pay, uh, it turns out there's a thing called a federal match, and, and they won't get as big a subsidy the states will. So in effect, it's a termination of the expansion, yes. Uh, you, uh, Randy, I believe, had mentioned the per capita spending limits, the caps that they're now going to put onto, I believe, the traditional Medicaid program. Uh, either of you, uh, how, what are your concerns about that, and how will that uh, directly affect uh, people who are on Medicaid? Uh, the per capita caps, they're a little different, one bill to the other. The first bill, the House bill, uh, adds uh, for two of the population cohorts, it gives uh, uh, medical CPI plus one. Uh, which is a little bit of a help for the hospitals. But the, uh, the second bill is much harder on traditional Medicaid. The Senate bill 
And uh, in the end, the Senate bill may be uh, more difficult for hospitals than the House bill on that one clause where over time the rate of increase in revenues for the Medicaid program would be cut more under the Senate bill than under the House bill. And those differences of a point or two over time, say 10 years, 10 percent, that is an enormous uh, pressure on the Medicaid hospitals to provide care to Medicaid patients. Let me ask you uh, this, Alan, as a, as a health care economist, is Obamacare in the so-called death spiral that uh, Donald Trump and the Republicans have been insisting it is for so long? And if so, why, why is it in that death spiral? Well, some, in some states, insurance coverage is becoming less available. But I think the CBO score that came out Monday was very clear on that. When they say there's going to be 22 more million people uninsured, they're in effect saying that the current system of care is going to continue with some stability and the new system would be much less stable and you would have that many more people with no longer having coverage. So it's not even close uh, as to which would be the more stable system for coverage of health care of Americans. And, and why have uh, insurers pulled out of a number of these states or uh, from the exchange from the Obamacare exchanges in a number of states and areas around the country? Why why has that happened? Why hasn't the 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 competition that was supposed to take place on the uh, those exchanges why hasn't that happened in many places? And and how could or should that be fixed? Well, is the question why why isn't the individual insurance market more stable under the Obama plan? Uh, well, yeah, I mean there was supposed to be all of these uh, people, uh, you know, fighting for, uh, you know, competing to get uh, people to sign up for their for their policies on the exchange, but that hasn't happened in a lot of states, a lot of counties where you've got just one provider instead of you know a bunch of people competing. Why did that happen? Well, let's let's look forward to the uh, uh, the uh, open season that's about to start. Mm-hmm. Uh, the current administration hasn't been in supportive of the subsidies. In fact, they've left the health insurance plans at dark. And indeed, a tweet the other day said, let, let us starve Obamacare, let it starve. Well, if they don't come in and support the system they have in place, it, it, could, it could be a tough go. But the CBO essentially said it'll be okay, but that's subject to the fact that, that the Obama, whatever system we have in place in individual markets continues to get the insurance subsidies. Without that, we could have a... a, a uh, a very uh, chilling effect on the individual insurance market. It's a matter of how the current administration handles the insurance subsidies and gives the insurance company some confidence that the, the support will be there as it's needed as we go through time. And that's, that's an administrative decision that can go either way. And uh, I will welcome either of your thoughts on this. Randy, I'll start with you. Uh, would a single-payer Medicare for All style healthcare systems solve many of these problems uh, that is th- th- currently being faced by, uh, frankly, both Obamacare and any of these Republican plans to replace it. Would would single payer Medicare for All be the solution here? Um, we have uh, we have looked at that in uh, a number of times. I know mm-hmm. a number of states, uh, Colorado, California, have have in the past. Um, uh, yeah, kicked around could p- putting a single. I think Minnesota as well doing a, a single payer program. Mm-hmm. Uh, one one option, it do, one thing that does is it will cover. You'll get everybody. Everybody will get coverage. Uh, how you how you pay for it is the uh, is the big problem. Mm-hmm. And unless you can get all the funds that are currently spent on on health care in the state coming in uh, from Medicare, from Medicaid, from employers. And so on. Without that money coming in, how, how you how you pay for it is um, is always has always been the uh, the big problem. 
uh, Alan Dobson. I'll give you a little. Vi- I, yeah. I, I'll give you just a little vignette on that. Yeah. Uh, uh, an economist, actually, an accountant named Bill Shao, was hired by the Taiwanese government to come up with its health plan. And they looked all over the world at the best kinds of ways, because, as you know, most uh, industrialized nations in the world have some form of, uh, of uh, government-sponsored insurance. Right. And they looked and looked and looked and studied and studied and studied, and at the end, they came up with something like a Medicare uh, a system for all. You might follow that up, because if, that's, if I recall that right, that's a very interesting vignette for your question. Well, yeah, because I'm wondering, you know, we see uh, these single-payer systems do work in many advanced nations around mm-hmm. the world, uh, you know, and I'm just wondering... And I hear this a lot from, from uh, frankly, from Republicans and many Democrats. They seem to argue, well, it's just not realistic here in the U.S. for some reason that they never seem to be able to explain. I mean, I guess, you know, the, the funding for it. But we, we pay for health care one way or another, uh, except where we don't. And in those cases, people don't get health care. But if we want to ensure that everyone in this country gets the gets the health care that that they need, it seems like it always keeps coming back to, well, you know what? Single payer is the simplest. It takes out the profit margin, uh, which saves money, you know, allows for you know things like negotiation for for uh, uh, pharmaceuticals and so forth, which we could be doing already. I, I just don't understand why where this gap is between the plans put forward by really uh, Democrats under Obamacare and now Republicans under un, under their schemes, why they don't even talk about single payer? Is it just fear because well, it's such a, a different actually, system? Actually, you, you do know why there's a gap, and that's because many people in this country don't feel it's responsibility of government to pay for health care, period, end discussion. And we have people philosophically disposed uh, essentially die on their sword to expand coverage to everybody in this country as a philosophical, political uh, doctrine. When you have that, that, that bit of uh, animosity towards single-payer, uh, politically, never mind the technical issues, which mm-hmm. are large, as Randy suggested, but politically, uh, Obama finally gave up on it. He said, well, you know, I can't do it, so I'm going to go with the Obama plan, because he felt he couldn't get through a single-payer plan in this country with the makeup of our country, roughly 50-50, of folks supporting expansion and folks not supporting expansion. It's a hard political lift. It's, the technical issues are hard, but the political ones may be harder. It's, yeah, that's a, that's yeah. a good point. Oh, I'm sorry. Go, no, go ahead, Randy. Yeah, that's a good point, Al, because when, when the Affordable Care Act was first getting kicked off, getting started, there was Obama did have an option in there. It was called the, the public plan, right, the public which was option. basically a Medicare-type of program. That um, that we we thought would grow over time because um, payment rates are lower, which should make it more affordable to um, admi- I'm sorry, administrative costs and payment rates to providers would be lower, which would make it more affordable, mm-hmm. and more and more people would would go into it. And you're you are right, a single payer program, the administrative cost should be considerably lower than what we pay for administration today. Uh, yeah, I think it's just it seems like it's a matter of political will at this point. I'm wondering if mm-hmm. now that these Republicans are seeing, uh, you know, how valuable, yes, government uh, funded health care is, uh, you know, to millions of their own constituents. Maybe that'll change the thinking about uh, the idea that, uh, yeah, it, it's OK if government pays to take care of its people. Uh, last question here. Um uh, for uh, for both of you, let's start with the Randy. Is there a way that you see it as you study this? Is there a way for Republicans to find a plan, in fact, 
that does meet both their critiques of Obamacare, but that does not harm those who uh, who rely on Medicaid and on, you know, and the hospitals that are uh, relied on by everyone at this point? Or uh, or has this just been a big political thing overall? And what we need to do is just fix the problems with Obamacare rather than start over from scratch. I believe uh, fixing the problems with Obamacare would be would would certainly we've we've invested an enormous amount of money into into the exchanges into the Medicaid expansions into a number of um, programs that are that were established under the ACA and to just scrap all that investment uh, doesn't doesn't seem prudent to me and I think there are some some fixes that could be made uh, some tweaks that, that when this started we we knew there was going to going to be issues along the way and you as as we have issues mm-hmm. you fix them and but um because we have such a divide in washington uh, those that um, don't like it are just are going to try to scrap it those that um do like it want to keep it keep it as it is uh, it's it's hard to come up with a compromise uh, Alan? Yeah, i think if you kind of look at the political layout right now you have many people that uh had pledged as they ran for office to kill obamacare and that's a pledge that's hard to walk away from for many, many members. The second issue is, and this gets into the taxing and the broader strategy of, of the administration, if the administration wants to have big tax cuts, they need to pay for them, and they're picking up, what is it, 300 and some odd billion dollars uh, with this cut under the Senate plan, uh, that, that frees up then money later on uh, to support a broader tax cut. It depends what your agenda is. If your agenda is to cover the people in this country with health care, Fixing Obamacare is a perfectly lovely way to do it, or to go to go some bit towards uh, uh, making sure that you don't undercut the Medicaid program and you have the subsidies for the insurance and you have something like a mandate so you don't get self-selection. But working against that are very strong political currents, and uh, as we saw in this last week, it's it's a, it's a pretty close horse race as to which one of those is going to win mm. as we go through the rest of the summer. It sure is. Uh, as your uh, study finds uh, over at uh, CommonwealthFund.org, uh, setting aside the the political, uh, you find the empirical evidence that the congressional bills to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act would clearly weaken the financial position of our nation's hospitals, especially those serving patients in Medicaid expansion states. I think this fight is uh, going to continue for some time, gentlemen, uh, and I hope you don't mind if we give you a shout again to to talk about it as it moves forward. Uh, Alan Dobson and Randy Haught, both of Dobson and Devonzo and Associates. You can find their study at CommonwealthFund.org. Great having you here today, guys. Thank you. Thank Thank you, Brad. Okay, running late. Uh, Let me take a quick break and back with some closing thoughts in a minute. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. Given the outcome of the 2016 election, we really need your support now more than ever. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance, now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. 
You know, I wanted to, uh, Desi Doyen, I wanted to talk with Alan Dobson and uh, Randy Haught, uh, and I thank them again very much, uh, because this, I, uh, I have a fear that now people are going to think this is over. I know. That is a very, very big fear, very dangerous that they think the fight is finished, and it is most definitely not. And this is exactly what happened in the in the House version, remember? If Paul Ryan said, we are absolutely going to vote for it this week. He Obamacare ended up is the law of the land, he, he said. He ended up, well, he had, but he had the Affordable Care Act, and uh, or no, what did he call it? The American Health Care Act that was going to have a vote this week, absolutely. And then he pulled it, and... A lot of people thought, okay, that's it. The Republicans are giving up on health care. And then they came back and, boom, got that thing passed. That same thing is going to happen in the Senate. Here was uh, here was Paul Ryan today talking about uh, Mitch McConnell over in the Senate. I would not bet against Mitch McConnell. Uh, he is very, very good at getting things done through the Senate, even with this, this razor-thin majority. Uh, I have every expectation that the Senate, I don't know what day, but I have every expectation the Senate will move this bill uh, and I assume this bill will have changes. You know why? Because we all made promises we would do that. Every Republican senator campaigned on repealing and replacing this law. So I believe that they'll get this done, and I believe they'll get it done because they said they would get it done. And because their billionaire donors want that tax cut. <laughs> yes, that's true. They sure do. But they did make that promise. They've been making it for, you know, seven or eight years, so they have to do it. They've got no excuses. They control both, uh, you know, both houses and the White House. So this is going to happen. You, listener, dear listener, are the only ones who can stop it. Don't forget to call your senators. Uh, write down the phone number uh, for uh, U.S. Congress, 202-224-3121. That's 202-224-3121. Find out where your senators are going to be over the July 4th recess uh, and uh, meet with them if you like. Protest as you like. Uh, this uh, make sure they understand how you feel the uh, taking away care from millions of people is not going to stop itself you are going to stop that from happening if anyone is anyway uh more on this as we move forward no doubt on the uh the next thrilling episode of the broadcast until then my thanks to desi doyan our producer to alan dobson and randy haught of dobson and devonzo and associates and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us if you missed any portion of today's program or any other you can download it for free anytime at bradblog.com while you're there, please consider stopping by bradblog.com slash donate to help us continue to do what we try to do every day on the air. You can drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com, and you can find, follow, and share us worldwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at The Brad Blog. That's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.